0: This podcast is brought to you by the Health Sciences Doctoral Training Centre at King's College London.
1: Hello and welcome to Lips, the podcast about all things postgrad. Welcome to Episode 7. I'm your host, Emily Pripper. Today, um, I'm joined by Dr Francis Smith, who is actually King's alumni and now, in fact, a postdoc research fellow at the University of Colorado, and recently published author of the book, Wonderfully Made. Today, I'm going to be talking to Francis about his research in Treacher-Collins Syndrome, but if you're not already familiar with Francis's inspiring story, we'll also be exploring his personal experience of living with this condition. On this episode, we also have the pleasure of talking to Professor Abigail Tucker, the Dean of Research at King's, on top of her role as Professor in the Department of Craniofacial Development and Stem Cell Biology. She will be joining our panel of post-ocalypse PhD students, Mads, ifr and Katie Begg. In the second half of this episode, we'll also be discussing our motivations for research. So I'd like to introduce everyone to Dr. Francis Smith. Thank you for coming on to post-ocalypse for us. So I guess my first question is, what's it like to live with Treacher-Collins Syndrome?
2: Well, well having no ears is impossible to here without specialized implantable hearing aids that vibrate the bones. Having a plex palate, I had to have surgeries to close that and speech therapy to learn to talk with the plex palate and jaw deformity. With missing uh, eye sockets and cheekbones, those had to be replaced. And I had my jaws rebuilt But besides all of the surgical uh, and clinical aspects Growing up with this this rare craniofacial syndrome Meant that my face looked so odd And it's still an unforgettable face today As a child I was always stared at I was out of uh, children's programs because of my appearance and my speech and hearing. I was bullied in school because of the kids, uh, how they, they reacted when they saw my face.
1: Yeah, I can only imagine. That's incredible that you have found a way to almost communicate, I think, how it is to be suffering with this condition at the same time as learning so much about it is this something that for you I think we all as researchers try and do a lot of public engagement but for you it it must be the biggest motivator for you is to get it out there of what it's actually like to have this
2: condition that is my biggest motivator my life experience that enables me to tell it like it is and to also have gone into a a unique career combining research and public engagement
1: I think that's absolutely incredible and is this the premise behind your new book wonderfully made
2: yes (laughs) the book wonderfully made is after Francis Joel Smith PhD story of Psalm 139 testimony co-written with professional author Michelle Duroy in the USA mm. of my early life uh, from birth uh, uh, well into my young adulthood mm. and then it gets into how I began, uh, how I found my calling in secondary school in the medical field and also the discovery of the Treacher Collins Syndrome gene in the 1990s which sparked my interest in genetics.
1: So Abigail, can you tell me how you first came into contact with this inspirational man?
0: Yeah so um Francis came as an undergraduate and signed up for the um integrated BSc in craniofacial sciences and I was one of the people um running the course um so Francis came and was in my group for um, journal reading grant writing ideas and we immediately um, hit it off. Um, I was very interested in Treacher-Collins syndrome. Um, I'd actually been working on some mouse models of Treacher-Collins syndrome, and particularly looking at their ears. Um, so with Francis, we had lots of discussions about what are your ears like, You know, or what time, when did you get your first hearing aids, um, as well as doing our normal discussions about what papers have you been reading, um, uh, what's the best research, um, uh, avenues to go down.
3: That's, that's really cool that you, uh, have, like, kept this friendship through, uh, like different, obviously, different continents. So after you were at King's for your BSc, did you continue to do research with Abigail or, or did you go straight back over to the U.S.?
2: Well, I did research with two different, uh, and professors in her department. I did a summer 2006 uh, research project with Martin Coburn on tracing the expression pattern of a new gene in Mouse and And then the following year, my final year, I did my BSC thesis project with Philippa Francis West on regulation of craniofacial muscle development. And then after King's, I went back to the US with the encouragement of my mentors to pursue a PhD, in fact. So I went back to the US and ended up at the University of California, San Francisco, where I did my PhD in Oral and Cranial Facial Sciences.
4: So it sounds like you were a very determined youngster when you were at school, forcing yourself to do your exams, etc. So, how did you find your PhD?
2: Well, it, it was a whole new level of uh, challenge. Uh, I had to be even more determined. It made me even more determined. I had to learn to be. Independent thinking scientists uh, have come up with a way to, for example, uh, devise a system to induce hypoxia in chicken eggs to study how early embryonic hypoxia adversely affects craniofacial development.
0: So, Francis, that's got lots of links with your own syndrome because Treacher Collins um, is associated with um, cell death of very early cells that are going into the head. Was that something you sort of chose um, intentionally?
2: Well, um, at the time, uh, I didn't realize such a link right there and there, but later on I found that link.
3: Yeah. Mm. Wow. So, how did you induce hypoxia in inside the eggs? Did you put them in a chamber? Or?
2: Well, we, my, my mentor and I brainstormed uh, transforming a chicken egg incubator into a nitrogen-fed hypoxia chamber with a with an oxygen sensor controller with which I can uh, titrate the level of oxygen down to certain percentages by feeding more uh, nitrogen into the chamber to displace the oxygen. So that can be statically controlled.
3: Do you still use chickens now? Because I was just thinking Why would you do this in a chicken, which is less similar to a human? And then I was thinking, obviously, mice have to be pregnant.
2: Well, we originally thought of doing it to mice, pregnant mice. And and we tried to think of a way to design a chamber to keep pregnant mice in, fed by uh, nitrogen, too similar to uh, statically lower the oxygen level, but there were many complications we uh, realized how, uh, how would we really know that the, the oxygen level would really drop in the embryos themselves. but mm-hmm. there's the, the way oxygen is transmitted from mother to embryo in mammals, is a bit more complicated than the simple uh, gas exchange across the eggshell. We eventually it was there were a lot of logistical constraints to using the mouth pregnant mouse model. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so you went on to use mice though later on in your um, postdoc. So uh, how how do you feel about sort of the different groups? What's your favorite organism to work on?
2: Well, it depends on uh, what focus you have. i also uh, what I focused on after my Ph.D. was done was three D craniofacial imaging and morphometrics. So I actually work not only with mouse but also avian embryos on different projects. Uh, Most of my projects were in uh, micro CT imaging, the mouse head, embryonic head, and neonatal mouse skull, and doing the morphometrics on the surface of embryos and on on the bones of the skull in neonates. And so we had different projects I was doing the scanning and analysis for, focusing on different areas of uh, developmental genetics and developmental biology, and using mouse models, and and for a project I did my, as a first author I studied the. By differing, divergent craniofacial growth trajectories in an evo-devo direction among three related bird embryonic species, chick, duck, and quail, and found morphometrically uh, uh, where they diverge in terms of facial shape, and found that ducks that diverge diverged most significantly and earlier than the other in the quail and chick do by virtue of the greatly enlarged frontal nasal uh, processes in VEC.
4: That's really cool. So I worked with zebrafish and my master's and I was learning about joint development.
2: Okay. But
4: the thing I found so fascinating about that kind of work is that you can see their development so clearly. And when you look at the other muzzle organisms as well, like the, the fowl and chickens and, and ducks and quail, you can just you can just see exactly how they've progressed over time and I think that's incredible.
2: Well, as a graduate student I, One rotation lab I worked in used a chimeric uh, quail-duck embryo called the (laughs) Pluck. Basically uh, transplanting a part from a, a duck, I mean a quail embryo into a duck embryo to compare as an internal comparison which Species, uh, uh, jaw develops faster than the other.
3: And so, on this like branch of diverging development, where, uh, where does, where do humans fit in? Are we quite, quite early to diverge and have?
2: Well, we, uh, I also collaborated uh, uh, with my, uh, when I was in Calgary. I did some work in collaboration with my former Ph.D. uh, group. Uh, That that project involved uh, diverging trajectories of human, mammal, reptilian, avian, and other classes of uh, embryos and found where they diverged from each other. uh, avians from non-avians.
0: And that's actually our um, our first uh, publication that we're both on, so uh-huh. we're now official collaborators. Yes, we <laughs> are. We're both on that one. <laughs> uh,
2: another project that was just recently published from my Calgary Morphometrics group was how F- the gene FGF8, uh, how differing differential expression can affect facial shape variation.
4: It's all about genetics, always about genetics. (laughs) And
2: how genetic variability can affect morphological variability. And also during that time in Calgary, uh, I was in, uh, in on some clinically focused projects uh, involving children with craniofacial differences. That is involved in uh, getting children to participate. as involved in uh, modeling, uh, t- reconstructing the 3D images from the special 3D camera. We use those children and doing with the analysis both on children in the U.S. and children in Tanzania. Mm. And and some later projects have been ongoing with Treacher-Collins Syndrome patients in the U.S. And I've met colleagues in Australia working on the same problem. And most lately, last November, on a visit in Brazil, uh, I was visiting a craniofacial specialty hospital in Brazil, and one activity I was involved in was assisting with the volumetric analysis of the the volume of the upper airway in Treacher Collins Syndrome patients from their CT. CT images, and that project is still going on with the hopes of publishing a paper with my colleague in Brazil, so the morphometrics and now metrics, still goes on.
0: And with the upper airway, I know it's something that um, you've had a lot of problems with over the years and had lots of tracheostomies. Um, is that something that you're particularly interested in, or is that an area of Trisha Collins you'd like to um I discover? would like
2: to pursue that further. In fact, the, the position that I have shortlisted for an interview in Indiana would involve doing uh, TCS upper airway volumetrics as well as craniofacial morphometrics. Uh, down in Brazil we have found so far that there is a thirty percent narrowing of the airway in treachercollins uh patients uh, compared to normal airway anatomy. And I I would like to use that technique in future to gauge how effective surgeries that are designed to open the airway, like uh, jaw surgeries. How effective are they really in opening the airway? Mm -hmm. Uh, There are surgeries like not only the traditional orthognathic and grafting surgeries, but the newer distraction osteogenesis surgeries are designed to lengthen the mandible as well as the maxilla to try to open the airway. There is a new protocol from Seattle Children's Hospital that involves separating and rotating the entire facial skeleton forward uh, with the philosophy that TCS is a an issue of total facial malrotation. And that might, so far in clinical trials, is helping to open the airway and stabilize the face in its new position, whilst orthognathic surgeries have the unfortunate tendency to relapse, as in my own case. So airway volumetric studies could potentially change the effectiveness of uh, orthognathic and other procedures designed to help uh, relieve the upper airway obstruction.
3: I think it's really powerful to see you with TCS doing your own research and it's you seem to have done a lot of work with children that also have TCS. Do yeah. you take it upon yourself to sort of motivate them to get into it, to like
0: seize the day sort of thing?
2: I think so. That's great. Yeah, uh, Francis,
0: uh, yeah, I was going to say tell us about your the cruises that well, you organise.
2: Ah. Well, uh, uh, three years ago, I came up with an idea to organise uh, a cruise or a cruise group. uh, A a group of people with creature columns and other craniofacial conditions just to get together on a Caribbean cruise holiday. So it it eventually evolved uh, with the help of a travel agent in Colorado Uh, where I had just moved to, and she and I teamed up to organize a a group to go on this cruise holiday in the Caribbean. We were a small group of 17, including me and my mother, and the rest of them were the family of a little girl with Treacher Collins Syndrome. of whom the travel agent was the grandmother. So we had a beautiful eight-day cruise together. And we had some group-specific activities, both aboard ship and ashore, such as a, a workshop that my mom and I both presented together, answering questions from the rest of our group and we had a group-specific shore explosion to a beach on one of the islands.
3: So, Francis, would you be able to bring us up to speed with the hot-off-the-press Treacher-Collins Syndrome research that you've been doing?
2: Well, well my research is not totally in Treacher-Collins Syndrome, but one of the, mo- the most recent projects I did directly with Treacher Collins with that visit in Brazil where I assisted with uh, airway volume measurement in CT scans of patients with Treacher Collins syndrome and comparing the airway volume with normal airway volume. So far we find a 30% narrowing of the airway in Treacher Collins Syndrome on average. We still have a lot of work to do together on that and we hope to publish together my colleague and I my Brazilian colleague and I. Excellent
4: So am I right in thinking that imaging is kind of your specialty?
2: Well most of my uh, research experience postdoctoral has been in 3D craniofacial imaging, and morphometrics, and uh, the labs at uh, the KCL uh, craniofacial development have uh, some of the morphometrics component in there. And I'm also interested in a in a connection between genotypic variability in Treacher columns with morphological variation because there is a very variable uh, phenotype or morphology and, and there is a very variable expressivity of not just the main gene of TCS which is called TCOF1 but there are two other genes in treacher columns called tor one C and D that also are involved in ribosome and genesis and they're cause rarer forms of TCS. So there's a lot of genotypic variability that will correlate it with Morphological changes,
3: and this one's more at both Abigail and France Francis. Um, how has being able to sort of get the insider knowledge on um, Treacher Collins syndrome um, affected how you perform your research studies, and how has it affected, um, you know, that sort of spark in you to actually pursue the research side of it, rather than you can go into lots of other things with science, sort of thing.
0: Yeah I mean from my point of view I think it's 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 very useful for me to be able to ask Francis things about his condition and get a very sort of scientific answer in reply we can start talking about you know the neural crest cells that are going to make his zygomatic arch mm-hmm. and why uh, why they're not there anymore um I've just been um, publishing work on how you make an external ear canal and Francis doesn't have an external ear canal so I said Francis can I take some photos (laughs) of your ears Um, because you know I can talk to him about you know what has it meant to you to not have an ear canal so that you can't hear sounds other than through bone conduction so it's been really unique in that way. Yeah I was going to say having that connection is
4: really really rare in science generally I think we were talking a little while ago about how for example, I'm I'm a cancer researcher. Okay. But I feel so far away from the from the patients that I'm I'm trying to help. So you guys are quite lucky that you have that connection,
0: I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's 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 been very enjoyable. I mean we've you know, to be able to have that relationship where we can talk about science, we can also, you know, talk about drinking lemonade and drinking soup and uh, lots of other aspects and uh, um But as you say, it's it's very nice to not be removed. And there is a patient and a scientist I can go to in one person. Mm. Thanks, guys.
1: So um, now we're going to move on to kind of talk about motivation in research. So, Francis, we kind of touched on it a little bit at the beginning, but your motivation to go in and do a PhD, obviously, as living with TCS was kind of a very much personal decision Um, but did you find that this was one that was um, very much instilled within you? You wanted to go on and learn more about this condition? Was it something you wanted to find a cure or just help people in the way of um, learning how to cope better with the disease and that kind of thing? What was it for you?
2: Well I wanted to to motivate others to uh, learn how to cope with it, and also how uh, or to motivate others to learn about the syndrome itself and what advances are being made clinically and in the laboratory.
1: That's amazing. So, then for, y- for you, uh- we said about it at the beginning, but the big motivator is really getting it out there about this condition and making it known to to everyone. So then, in terms of your in terms of your work, motivating is it very much? It does it come quite naturally because I know as a PhD student, some days are a lot tougher than others to yeah, kind of yeah. get to the lab. But for yeah. you, is it very much just something you thoroughly enjoy the research and you just really enjoy the day to day of research, or is it very much that that personal experience that, that fuels that desire or is there pure enjoyment in it?
2: I think there is a mix of them. Um, uh, uh, during my busiest period as both a graduate student and a first postdoc, um, uh, I had uh, both the motivation and the uh, desire.
1: Yeah. So, to go back then into when you were doing your BSc here, so not only were you just an overseas student, and London's a scary place for a lot of people, even me who came from Oxford, you know, half an hour train away, but for you, you know, in a social situation, it can be very intimidating anyway to then also be overseas. How did you stay here and not, not go home to your family?
2: Well, moving over here from my family, in a semi-rural town in Indiana to come over here on my own which was my first move away from home. It was very scary. I was apprehensive. I was a bit bit homesick the first year (coughs) and trying to get to know new people
1: yeah, it can be really, really tough. Yeah. So how, how did you, what what kind of coping mechanisms, what did you do to kind of keep yourself happy, I guess? And
2: Well, I had to force myself to get, put myself out there and meet people of my own, and people realise who I was. I also had to make more of an effort to uh, uh, fit in uh, which I very rapidly did <laughs> succeed in fitting into British culture.
1: <laughs> you learn sarcasm very quickly. That's That always helps. Or make a good cup of tea and you're everybody's friend then. Right. Something along those lines.
2: Uh, and uh, my parents have in the past told me I have a dry sense of humor.
1: <laughs> so you were going to fit in. It was a good move after all.
2: And I... Looking back, I realized that I started to have an anglophilia long before I realized that I would have an opportunity to come here. So something was happening in me before I realized it. Well, years before I realized that there would ever be an opportunity to come here, I started to get an unexplained... Uh, anglophilia So
1: to bring it back to research then and your motivations for that, what's the what's your end goal what would be your ideal um, kind of
2: Well I've seen my career evolving into a mix of research uh, research in academia and the public engagement uh, but I'd like to continue research more in, in the morphometrics and volumetrics, and and also maybe figure out whether it, there is a correlation between genetic variation in TCS with morphological variation.
1: That sounds fascinating. And would this would would ideally would it, would it be something that you would want to find a a cure for with or look at for genetic screening and that kind of thing or or is it more to do with the coping with the, the disease and helping through?
2: Okay. In, the short, in the meantime it will be a coping with mm-hmm. the syndrome and addressing the medical problems with it while we're continuing to learn more about uh, genetics and morphology and how they correlate and also uh, more clinically how we can address measure and address the uh, obstruction of the airway. Clinically, I follow the advances in surgery. Uh, Also, I'd like to uh, enhance my public outreach. I already do a lot of public speaking in many different venues worldwide.
1: And I also saw that you're a member, or a you're a director on the board of, um. forgot the name of it. On well, the
2: I'm involved with two different organizations in the U.S. The one is called Children's Craniofacial That's it, Association. Yeah. I have involved with their activities since uh, I uh, graduated secondary school at uh, being a role model among the craniofacial community. More recently since I moved to Denver I was encouraged to serve on the board of directors of the Courageous Faces Foundation who serve People with rare and severe medical conditions and the unique thing about our board is that all of us members of the board also have some rare or severe medical condition.
1: So when it comes to talking to people that also have TTS and, and motivating them to put themselves out there and go after what it is that they want, how is it that you do that or how how can you, because it seems to me that you had such an incredible support and you almost were guided in that way and it was quite easy for you to do that. But with someone without that support, how can then you speaking to them, how can you give them that motivation to go out there? And
2: I guess my, just by speaking out I can be an example. Yeah. And the, the recent publication of my biography, Wonderfully Made, and uh, co-written with a professional author Michelle Dubroy in the US. This will actually be a resource for families of people with TCS and other craniofacial conditions by sharing my life story, my coping, and those, and the story of a family uh, who raised me and the story of how I could go on and make a life,
1: and um, in the book, it's very, um, it's you, the Bible is used almost as a template. So you'd say your faith was extremely strong in all, kind of like as the huge motivator for you yes, would you it would is. say
2: so. Yes.
1: So
4: Francis, off air, you were talking about going to some primary schools recently. Yes. Do you want to talk to us a bit about your experience there?
2: Well. Uh, Last um, Thursday, uh, uh, Abby and I went to a primary school in southeast London. Uh, It had been arranged beforehand between Abigail and the school that would come and speak to their year six classes. So I went there on Thursday and spoke to all of the year six students in assembly room. I talked a about my life experience and talked about what what it was like being a real life army, and uh, and then I opened it up to questions from the children and the children were so full of questions they were gen- genuinely uh, interested
4: so what's, year six, I guess that's age 10 or 11? Yes. Okay. So what kind of questions did they ask?
2: Well, they asked a lot about my tracheostomy sport. Okay. They asked about my hearing aid. And some even asked about my, why my voice the, is the way it is. And some asked about, uh, uh what, what do I like in sport? <laughs> yeah which I, I like uh, watching baseball and cricket and some local food. Mm.
3: <laughs> we just need to clear up what the real life, I haven't watched the film, So, it Oggie,
0: Aggie? Is the main, yes, yeah, the young, little boy. Yeah. In, so, so in the film um, Wonder, um, there's a little boy with Treacher Collins Syndrome and that's found now as a sort of new audience Um, and people are sort of understanding that uh, treacher Collins Syndrome is a thing. Um, How has that book and the film affected you, Francis?
2: Well, it has uh, given me a platform from which I can talk to about my life experience as a real-life audience, especially to primary school children in, uh, in the U.S., and now the UK and have spoken at quite a number of schools at home stateside. So it builds a platform, actually, for me to be able to share uh, what an adult can go on to do with Trichard Collins Syndrome.
3: Do people um, stop and ask you questions on the street at all?
2: Once in a while, they may ask about my hearing aids or once in a while I've even asked if I've been in a fire because of all the skin mm. grafting and sparring.
4: Gosh. And how how do you how do you feel about people asking you these questions? Is it a good thing for you?
2: Well, now now it is a good thing it was not been a good thing back in my childhood, especially in the eyes of my parents. That now I see it as an opportunity to answer questions and educate about uh, this rare condition.
3: You talk about your mother a lot, especially in your book, but you mentioned that she she's 94 at the moment, so she sounds like a fantastic woman.
1: Yes.
3: Um, did the other children that she adopted have... Uh, did they also have craniofacial disabilities, or was it all different things?
2: Uh, all of the other... And ten siblings had a wide uh, variety of uh, conditions and challenges from two twin boys with uh, cleft lip and palate to a, an older brother with a maternal drug addiction to another older brother with cerebral palsy postpartum and a whole Constellation of uh, challenges represented. Mm -hmm. Uh, No one else had a craniofacial syndrome other than the twin boys with non-syndromic cleft lip and palate. Mm -hmm. And my younger sister had a meningitis that destroyed her skin all over, Mm -hmm. including her face. And passed through her legs. So she has a lot of spin graphic. So she has an acquired craniofacial uh, uh sort of disorder uh,
3: almost. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. With the so w- so when you were going out to church and, and things like that you were used to people um, looking for a little bit too long at your family? And has that made how you deal with things um, has it made you more patient when you see people they clearly don't understand? It's not, they don't really mean
2: yeah, to Yeah, I try to be more patient with mm. them. Well, with most challenges, well, there are still people out there who cannot understand my voice, and especially on the telephone and other electronic media which distort my voice. Yeah. beyond what is already distorted, then is. It takes energy to repeat myself. Mm. Yeah. Well, I have become more patient with people who ask me questions. As a child I was I, uh, I was kept out of catechism and other children's programs and kept out of some classrooms or even entire schools because their administrators or teachers could not handle my appearance and challenges.
0: Francis, I remember you telling me that um, you took a long time with your one of your speech therapists to actually make eye contact with her. Um, so, what age were you then, and when did you f- first decide that you actually you were going to communicate with people?
2: Well. I started speech therapy at age three and shortly after I came into my adoptive family. I was so frustrated and at the same time so stubborn and determined. So it took this speech therapist who was very well renowned in our community that she could make teach a telephone pole to talk. And she, with her determination, uh, battling with my determination, she eventually uh, got me to finally establish eye contact. And she found a way to get eye contact with me by distracting me with something like car jangling (laughs) that got me to pay attention.
3: Can you plug your hearing aids into like headphones? So like how how are you going to hear our podcast?
2: There's no no way you use headphones with these.
3: Can you like headphone jack them in or anything?
2: There are no jacks on these. These are Bluetooth enabled. Mm. Ah. And there are specialist headphones that are designed for bone convection. And then once eye contact was established, she was able to get me to make sounds, and then letters, and then words, and then simple sentences. And, and the insurance for that ran out then when I went to primary school in the local education authority in our town the public schools as we call them in America. There's a speech therapist on the staff there. She worked with me through primary school and she is still practicing at the same school. One summer I went to a specialist summer camp for children with speech and communication disorders for almost the whole summer. And that that also helped me uh, create more intelligible speech. Mm -hmm. So it took years to get to create intelligible speech in me, along with all the cleft palate and jaw surgeries.
4: So when you started speech therapy, how well could you hear at that stage?
2: Well, I was using very basic. Bone conduction hearing aids that resembled uh, radios with a cord and a vibrator and a headband. The old Sony Walkman style mm. hearing aid. Mm. And that was my, I just started wearing hearing aids before that was death.
0: Mm. So, I mean, that's a quite a long time. I mean, it's almost the first sort of three years of your life that you were, you were deaf, and now yeah. the, the policy is to try and get um, uh, hearing aids into children as soon as possible.
2: Yeah, see, my foster mother had tried to get hearing aids on me earlier, mm-hmm. and they apparently weren't the right type I needed, mm-hmm. and apparently there was a little bit of hearing after a fashion through my cleft palate. And it describes that in the book as well.
3: Do you think about the days of your speech therapy, now you're doing all this public engagement? Do you have any tips for other people who might be listening that um, also have communication issues for public speaking?
2: Well, like confidence or... Mm. Well... I hope my example of emerging from speech therapy and eventually going into public speaking provides an example to inspire others to confidence in communication.
1: Thanks, panelists, for that discussion. And thanks also to our star listener, Severe, for getting in contact with us and letting us know that Francis is here in the country so that we could get him on Post Postocalypse. Just a reminder that if you have any thoughts about what we've talked about today, um, you can tweet us on at postocalypse18 or drop us an email postocalypsepod at gmail.com. And if you've liked our podcast so far, please do spread the word. You can also like us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast to help us get noticed. As the more overwhelmed postgrads we reach, the better. Till next time, bye.